Crash Course in History, Rabbi Blaiwai, Session 13. We're going down to the end of this Second Temple period, and the sects are just cropping up everywhere. You remember them back when they were simply Stukim and Baitusim, the first two original, and now they're literally all over the place. They reemerged. There are, as far as we can identify it, over 24 identified sects, but there probably were more. Um, among them, some, uh, do you know any of the names of the others? Who are the, the tiny groups? Each, when I say sect also, to define our terms, we're talking about people who brand themselves, consider themselves to be Jewish, and then they just make it up as they go along. What? Conservative, reform, reconstructionist. They are sects. Now, there already, you can say that it's not so much of a sect as a division, because at least they're with within the Dalit Amos of Halacha. Maybe there's a difference between no, somebody mean, who's like, keeping a law versus I mean, not. Like, yes, I mean the Hasidim. Which Hasidim? Not the today's Hasidim. You mean like, the original movement? The, the original movement? I don't know. That's probably too harsh. It's probably too harsh. That's why I'm resisting it. I know. You're talking about the 18th century. No, no you're talking about like. Well, Hasidim before the Hasidish movement, a Hasid was a higher grade of a tzaddik. Right, exactly. It wasn't a sect. It wasn't a group. There wasn't a group that no. Was no. There was a group was called Hasidei Ashkenaz. That's what Maybe the Hasidei Ashkenaz, which are a branch of Tosfos, but they weren't a sect. They were simply very righteous people. Uh-huh. Hence the name. I'll have to look that up. Fine. Other groups around this time period are uh, called... Um, Kutim are most certainly around, and they can certainly be qualified and characterized as a as a sect. The Christians, the Christians are a sect. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Kidding, no, it's true. And we're going to get to them. We're going to talk about them today. Like in, in a moment, off, yes. Right, they were a sect because they were Jews. They considered themselves to be a variant of Jews. They claimed to have a Messiah. It's true, but well, that, that, that was yeah. Is it true that Paul was actually? Well, oh, you're two steps ahead of me. Let's. We're gonna, I'm going to get to Christianity in a moment. Let me just first give you a little bit more. We then we've heard of the Tzedukim who had in certain areas they were um, they claimed to be even more from in the areas of Tuma and Tara and other things. But deep down, they lacked Yerushalayim. They rejected um, normative Torah Judaism. They rejected the rabbis and they went up to do their own thing. By two are small. The um, Essenes. You're familiar with a group called the Essenes. Dead Sea Scrolls, maybe. We're actually not 100% sure if the same group, by the Dead Seas, they, by the Dead Sea in 14 different caves, they discovered these scrolls from this time period that, um, that seem to show a lot in common, seem to show a lot in common with this group that Josephus describes as the Essenes. And so maybe it's the same people. A lot of, most people feel convinced that it is, but there's no, we don't know that with certainty. What is true is that these groups, both of them, were. Um, Estes, they were they were anti this world. They rejected any kind of physical pleasure. Um, they worked the land in communal cooperation. Probably the original socialists. They were misogynists. They hated women. Women were the source of evil. It was. Yeah, they hated women. The um, so were they all 
Among other things, a lot of Christians, um, one of the reasons the Christian world is, 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 is fascinated with the, with the Dead Sea Scrolls is they reflect a sensibility that they recognize very well, for example, in the form of John the Baptist. You know anything about Christianity? They have this within Christian ideology. This is a let's say a category of thought. Uh, you know, it's it's a precursor to Christian monasticism. What is what is the monastery? Like where you go to chill. Like where you go to just step reject away. this world. This world is evil. Any pleasures of this world equal evil, equal Yitzhahara, and therefore the ideal is not getting married, not eating normal food, eating the simplest, sparest kind of a diet, and living off in desert land. We have remains of, from the Byzantine period, which is several hundred years from now, we're not there yet, but from the Byzantine period where the Christians are dominant around the Eretz Palestine, as it was called in those days already, um, the... Uh, there are monasteries that remain, uh, I hope we'll hike there, but unfortunately in these, these days uh, it's, it's one of the many dangerous areas in Eretz Israel, but I hope we'll hike in some of these areas in Wadi Kelt and elsewhere where you have holdover remains of, of Christians, not monasteries, and there are Christians who still today live there, and they, they have nothing to do with this world, and that's seen as an ideal, and they, they can trace this back here. What's that? more Christians. Right, that's one of the problems. You know, there, there are all kinds of theories. Whatever happened with this community, but it's kind of hard to replenish yourself if you don't have babies. That that is one of the inherent um, uh, disqualifications. Now, at one point, the the Essenes began, according to Jesus' description, they began as being. Um, simply, uh, like the Jews, maybe more machmir than your average Jew. At one point, Chazal forbade their entering the um, the uh, Beis Hamikdash area and offering korbanos because they had strange, extreme ways that were not Torah anymore. And that's also see. I mean, again, I, I, I can't encourage you enough. I hope to give you a taste of history so you can take it to the next level and learn it yourself. But it really is instructive to see these old groups because it tells you a little bit about our world. As well, we sometimes have people, let's say the most sincere people, a lot of, not the most, but people with, the, with, with, very, with great sincerity who want to serve Hashem, who do so sometimes in ways that can be beyond what Torah and Halacha call for. <laughs> well, that does comes to mind, and that comes to mind, but no, I'm talking about things, certain practices, let's say, in, 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 I don't want to start picking out, we'll get on a tangent, we'll get out of here, but there's certain practices people do that don't have a basis in Torah, and with the best of intentions, these people are coming, and they're simply taking it to a different level, and not necessarily the same religion. What? No, that's not being machmir and the same Hashem. That's right, being feminism and projecting feminism to Judaism. Yeah. When it comes from a legitimate source, that's what's so tricky about Chumrah. We had a discussion a few minutes ago in, 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 in the Shkafa class about, about the nature of Chumrah. One of my favorite hats ever. Somebody has a hat that says, I'm machmir on stuff that you've never even heard of. Which is great. If you think about the psychology of Chumrah, if a Chumrah is coming from a great place, meaning a person is sincerely trying to serve Hashem, and they simply are trying to put a fence around Halacha, let's say it's a weakness, it's an area that they're not particularly good at, so as a way of getting away from the temptations of the Yetzer, they're machmir, well, okay, that sounds good. But Rav Schechter, um, Rav Schechter used, uh, uses an excellent metaphor. He says that sometimes a Chumrah that's inappropriate, that's often premature. A guy's barely keeping Shabbos and he's suddenly being machmir on certain things that are way beyond what he should be worrying about right now. He said, he gives the metaphor, he says it's like a woman wearing the most extravagant jewelry over her pajamas. 
right? A first lady, get, a, get an appropriate dress, and then start thinking about what kind of necklace you're gonna wear with it. First, first learn to keep Shabbos properly, and then you can start putting the adornments on with, with, with proper chumras. What about like traditions that were brought, brought in based on society? Very good. So we'd have to analyze each one and see where it's coming from. Many of them are very positive. If they, I mean, it doesn't take much. This is very commonsensical. If it's something that's going to enhance your observance, it's not coming at the expense of anything else, it's an upgrade, well then goes on to hey, The problem is we see in life that some people take on Chumrah, sometimes again, L'Shem Shemaim, well-intentioned, but they... They, they, they lose proportion. I mean, the best example, let's say, uh, a funny example, but it's a sad example, the guy who yells at his wife who baked the pecan pie on Rosh Hashanah. He said, Doesn't you, don't you know, everybody knows that the gematria of, of egos is chait? You know the famous story, right? We talked about this, right? So, of course, what do we say to that guy? The gematria of chait is chait. Right? In other words, what are you yelling at your wife for on, the, on, on, the, on Yom Adin? The way, don't you know that the way you treat others is the way Kaddish Baruch Hu treats you? Don't you have it backwards, sir? And that's frequently the case. We see people being so machmir on not eating nuts on Rosh Hashanah, and they... they yeah. Well, there you go. It's a minag. It's a minag, and it's a beautiful minag. It's meant to elevate your consciousness and not to do the opposite, which is the case with this guy who lost purity. You never yell at your wife, ever, for any reason. Right, certainly not over something so so relatively minor. Is, is, is splitting your is, is if she burns the toilet, it's different, Ari. Come on. Is splitting your eggs into four. Um, <laughs> wow, I have a file. I have a file. We'll do it. I have it. My file is called Valid or Bubba Mice. We bring in all these things that people do. Is this a real thing? How about those red strings they wear around their around their uh, wristwatch? Braiding Bubba Mice. And like that. And we, we try to go through because there's. Let's not go there here. Okay, we're talking about sex in, this, in the late Second Temple period. The um, I, I have a lot to say about Christianity. I'm being intentionally um, brief and descriptive. The um, early Christians, indeed, were all Jews. There was a fellow. Here's what we can agree on. There was a fellow named. Um, they called him in the Torah, in, in the in the Chazal, Yeshu, Yun Yud Shin Ayin, uh, often referred to by religious Jews later by, as Yeshu, standing for Yamach Shemon Vizikro. His name should be uh, erased and, and blighted out. The um, you're allowed to speak like this about Christianity. It's a form. It's a kind of a Vodazara, according to the post scheme. Uh, it's, it's shituf. It's related to Vodazara, and we're not supposed to take it seriously in, in, in a way that, we, that we're not supposed to be re- respectful of it. It's a problematic entity. And and the early Christians were, were Jews. Um, who Yashka was exactly, what role he played in the development of the Christian of Christianity is is debatable. Um, it may be that the man had nothing to do and was not interested in creating his own religion. I feel like I'm missing something down there. The uh, he, had, he had nothing to do that. One of the problems is that the early Christianity doesn't have doesn't have any clear um, origins unless you believe what they write in their New Testament. The problem with the New Testament, the problem with the New Testament. Like where do we get started? Uh, where, where do we end that? There are the, what they call the right. It's probably even using the term because it implies that there's new and there's old. None of it's legitimate. It's their own world. Where they're making it up. 
they conflate all, they, they, they lift, you know what plagiarism is, right? The picture book of plagiarism is what they call their New Testament because they take all kinds of stories that happen to us. They can't take our stories. There's a whole miracle story by Eliyahu Navi, and there's one by Elisha Navi, and they even, they even lift stories directly out of the page book from maybe Yechanina Ben Dosa and other tzaddikim, and they say they all happen to Yashka. And everything that happens, every, everything you see is all Yashka. Um, there, let me just say this point that you're on, Henry. That there is an idea that Yashka actually may be several different figures all rolled together into one. To me, I don't think we'll ever know this for sure. Michelle will come and we'll, we'll get clarity, I guess. But, but until then, I'm not sure we'll have clarity because we really don't know. There's so much ambiguity around, around his, his origins. Again, Chazal acknowledged there was a guy. He was a big Russia. Uh, it was a terrible Russian. He was Chayiv Misa. And if we, according to the Gemara, that many of the poskim, many of the Rishonim, Rambam among them, holds that the fellow who's, who's referred to in the censored Gemara in Sanhedrin, Mem Gimel Amad Aleph, was indeed Yeshu, and that he was not crucified, but rather um, he was Chayiv Skila for his grave sins. And they gave 40 days people to, to be Malam Nobody stepped forward. And they killed the guy. They hanged him afterwards. Afterwards, his five disciples are killed. And that's generally understood to be about Yeshu. That, that Gemara seems to take place around this time period. We already mentioned here that there's another Yeshu, maybe the same, maybe a different one, who lived 200 years earlier. And it was a disciple, apparently a former disciple of Yeshua ben Prachia. So will the real Yeshu please stand up? And we really don't know. In the end of days, we have all these censored, we have these censored sources. So here's my punchline. The theory that I find very compelling is that the early Christian um, architects, Paul and Peter and the rest of them, uh, all Jews, Shaul, was, Shaul was, the, was the real name of Paul, Peter was Shimon, and they came together and put together, hobbled together a composite figure who was made up of all of these, all these guys because they wanted to put over to the pagan, you know the Roman world was pagan beforehand? Yeah. The pagan Roman world, a new messianic figure. And they figured they'll, you know, oh, that's a good story. We'll say that happened about Jessica too. Oh, and this one's good too. And they rolled it together and and and, and Hence, a Messiah was born. Henry? Uh, so how did Jesus or Jesus is a problematic word, so you're correct to correct yourself. Why did Jesus How did he attract so many non-Jewish followers? I'll, I'll try to explain it. I'll try to explain it in a nutshell I'm, uh, with, the, with, the, with the caveat that I could do this much better if I had more time, but I don't want to, I don't want this to be a whole class in Christianity and uh, arts of Christianity. But it's it's the question to ask. So let me do it. And Alex and Aaron, hold hold the thought for just a moment. So, right, you're all with you're all with Henry's excellent question. So how, how did they put this over? They came with a plan. They're going to take, and, and part of it makes a lot of sense to us. They're going to take some of the lofty ideas of Torah. You have to realize. Think about it this way. <laughs> Torah is emes. It is the most profound, meaningful truth in the world that if people were exposed to the deeper ideas, they should embrace it. The Torah is, all, we don't try to proselytize. We don't try to present it to the world. So that's not our usual mode of being. We try to improve the world in other ways. But the Christian world thought, the early Christians thought, they're going to take this and sell the pagan Roman world that was desperate and starving for meaning. See, the Romans had conquered the physical world. Remember, this is Asa. They conquered the physical world. They had, and it's very, very interesting because it, it really reflects what's going on in modern Western society to a large degree. Listen to this idea. The Roman world had everything. They upgraded humanity. Remember last Thursday we talked about this, the world's first latrines and indoor plumbing and all this great stuff that, that now you can live in the world. When you have everything materially, 
it shines a flashlight on the fact that you lack anything spiritually. People are all made B'Tselem Elohim. Thinking, feeling people are going to have all these material luxuries and look around and say, what's it all for? Why am I in this world? Well, paganism never solves, never gets into that, those kinds of deep answers. Philosophy never really solves the riddle of the world. The Greek philosophers never had that. You heard about when the philosopher was on his deathbed? And they finally approach him because they're frustrated. He's all the deep thinking philosophy, but they don't know the basic questions. So they say, oh, great philosopher, tell us, tell us what is the meaning of life? So in his, in his dying last breath, the philosopher says, life, life, life is a river. It's a major revelation, and it shoots around the room. Everybody starts quoting him. The philosopher says, life, life is a river. And out in the hallways, the word spreads, life is a river. And into the streets, everybody's packed around, waiting to hear the wisdom of the philosopher. Life is a river, life is a river. It gets to the other side of town, and somebody says, life is a river. And there's a little boy there, and he, he hears what the philosopher said, and he says, what does he mean, life is a river? And people standing around said, yeah. Hey, what does he mean, life and then it goes back from the streets to the town. What does it mean, life? What does it mean? Into the corridor and into the main room. What does life mean? And they <coughs> politely say, oh, great philosopher, what do you mean life is a river? And he looks at them and he says, so it's not a river. Oh, you don't know philosophy. Anybody who studied philosophy 101, that, they, that gets a howl. That's a great line. Because that's just what it is. They don't know what life is. They can explain you know, the most esoteric kinds of concepts. But that life, what's it about? But Torah is real good for that. Torah gives you the deeper meaning of life. It gives you a moral dimension. It really answers everything. So the early Christians, Henry, to, to come full circle in your question, the early Christians packaged some of the deeper, beautiful ideas of Torah. They stripped it, eventually, of all those fuddy-duddy mitzvahs, you know, getting your hands dirty, cleaning for Pesach, and, and, and all the, you know, the, the burdensome stuff. They remember all that stuff, because who, who wants that? And they, they presented to the world like good used car salesmen that they were. I would, they would definitely put over a, good, a used car. And they knew, it, they knew their audience. And by the way, it took them a few hundred years till they hit their mark. Early Christians gave up on the, Christian, on the Jewish world, because we were not buying. And so they turned to the pagan world. They tried their best, but they were mostly a persecuted sect in the early, in the, let's say, the period what we call the Tanaim, the first few hundred years of their existence. They were more persecuted than the Jews, arguably. And it took till about the fourth century, the early 300s, for them to finally, they basically converted the Byzantine Empire. And then they took off and went viral. But it took a little while for them to get their stride. But that was their goal. They wanted to convert the world and have their own new cult. It was a Jewish cult, but it wasn't. There's evidence that they kept mitzvahs for a certain period too, but they didn't do it as a, as a sense of obligation. Alex. I'm a Quaker, and I don't know if this is true, so don't uh, call me a Quaker. Uh, pretty much, <laughs> I heard that it's possible that Paul was doing it with Shem Shemai. Can I go to a Kofer, or it has to be a Quaker? Okay. No, go ahead, go ahead. Paul was? No, there are all kinds of legends. Rashi says that anybody, he, for example, Rashi addresses the Baba Misa that um, Peter, Shimon, um, wrote the Tefillah Nishmas Kolchai that we said Shabbos and Yantiv. They certainly did. There's a, there's a myth out there that Peter, St. Peter, the first pope, in other words, what they call St. Peter, he, he coined the, uh, he, he phrased the, um, the Tefillah Nishmas Kolchai. Rashi says, in addressing that, he says, anybody who propounds this theory is going to have to bring, when the when the of Mikdash is rebuilt, they're going to have to bring a big, fat uh, korban chatas for their sins, for uh, for for, for, for These are all myths. Really? And, and they were all Roshan. Really? Yeah. Huh. Paul is really the architect of Christianity. 
he stripped Judaism of its mitzvahs. He gave it a Neoplatonic kind of a finish. Uh, high Greek philosophy, meaning very anti-physical world. Um, he said that you can't, you have no, humanity is doomed. There's no way you could ever make tshuva. And the only hope you have that, that, that humanities has is to believe in Yashka. Once you believe everything, everything is saved. These are all um, Paul's innovations. Uh, and again, he he he, uh, he 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 found a society that was that was desperate for meaning, and and, and eventually they eventually found their their audience. The um, the other thing I want to say there was a question over. Arne, you had something. I talked to Daddy. Uh, there's a pretty similar question. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Um, Jesus has all kinds of what the word Jesus has something to do. It traces back to a Latin word. Has something to do with the word word. Mm-hmm. And it has something to do. They use it much like Lahavdil. We might refer to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. We refer to a Kaddish Baruch Hu as Hashem, the name. There's a simple, basic concept. Um, in Greek, Christos means, is Greek for Messiah. So you call him Christ, you're referring to him as the Messiah. That's a problem. Right? If you do it like I'm doing it, you're referring to the terms they're referring I don't, I don't. You know that I don't mean anything serious by it. But they do. How do you write the first letters in Christos? In, in, in Greek characters, they look like this, right? Did you ever wonder why um, Bill Gates named his program that? Because word XP. Yeah. Conspiracy theories everywhere. Um, how did the Christians see the Jews? Other than hating us, Asaph Sotoliyakov. It is a lot to say. I'm going to say something very big and very deep, and very, and, 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 and obviously we can go very far on this. If you understand the following principle, you understand a huge amount of history. The Christians are threatened by the Jews. Fundamentally, the church has always been because they claim to be the Jews. They hoped and thought that the Jews would follow in line and follow Yashka. When they failed and the Jews continued keeping Torah and tradition as we'd always done, the mainstream Jews, um, they found that threatening because if you think about it, they superseded us. When we talked about supersessionism, this was, a, this was one of the things we, in one of our tangents in this, in this crash course, we did the supersessionism. They have replaced the Jews. That's why everywhere in the, what they call the Old Testament, where it says Yisrael, who's that referring to? Them. They're the Christians. They're the, they're the replacements. The other, the other name for it is replacement theology. They've replaced the Jews. I then, well, who are the Jews? Aren't we the original chosen people after all? So now what they do, and Augustine, what they call Saint Augustine, takes us into a whole new uh, stratosphere. He, 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 he says the Jews then serve a function in the world. We're the failed chosen people, as they see it, because we failed to recognize the Lord Christ, the Messiah. And as a result, we became, instead of the chosen people, we reverted into being the despised people. We are what's called, Augustine's term for us in Latin is testi veritatis, which means we're the witness people to be despised, to be persecuted, to be chased out of town every, at every opportunity, but to survive all of history so that when Yoshka comes back, when they invented the second coming, um, so that the Jews will clunk themselves in the head and say, oh, you know, oops, <laughs> sorry. 
and that we'll testify having seen all of history stubbornly and then realizing the folly of our ways and that it was all Yashka all along. And I mentioned this and we talked about this and I'll stop right here, but the same idea, that's why the Vatican refused to recognize the existence of the state of Israel. They were the longest holdout, I mean, remember until when? 1992. It took them as the last entity they recognized the state of Israel because doing so was effectively abnegating, rejecting thousands of years of Christian theology that proved that, what was their, what was their basic argument? And Pablo Christiani says it's against the Ramban and the famous debates in 1263 in Barcelona, Barcelona, as it's pronounced. Uh, so the um, he sa he says that the the look at the Jews. Everybody hates them. Everybody kicks them out. What did Ramban say back to us? Who's doing that? It's the Christian Church, who's got a theological axe to grind with the Jewish people and want to keep they want to keep us suppressed. So they can prove their own theology, right? And as you guys are the ones who are doing it, it's not a sham. Yeah. Um, is that is the view of um, what's it called replacement theology? Is that smooth throughout every single sect of Christianity? No. But it's a bit, it's it's early Christianity. Many of the sects that you know in the world today are, are relatively modern. That's what, that's what I was thinking. Christianity itself, while we're doing it very briefly, had has you think the Jews have lots of subgroups? They have even more. Listen, there are 2.2 billion in the world, so and and it's really easy to be Christian. So there are lots of groups and subgroups and and, and anti groups. The basic rifts in Christianity. The first major rift took place obviously in the Council of Chalcedon in 451 in the Common Era, right? Yeah. Duh. Duh. Um, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, where the church came out, this is the first time in history the church came out with a doozy that Yashku was 100% human, as they'd always said, and simultaneously 100% divine, divinity. And some of the groups within the church said, 100 plus 100 makes way. And how does that work mathematically? And they said, that can't be, that's nutty. And so they formally broke away from the, the four groups formally broke away and the first schism that the church had formally was the schism, I told you this, no? Didn't we do this? I think so. We did, we did the, I did tell you this, because I, mean, I used this line. The, um, the, the Syrian Christians called the Jacobians, the, the um, Ethiopians, the, um, the uh, Armenians were the first official country to have to be a Christian state. And then the, the Copts, the Coptic sect of Egypt, when they left the church, they copped out. The, uh, yeah, the next major schism is 1058. 1058, the Eastern Orthodox splits from the Roman Catholic Church. Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and others. Um, they're the ones who are more dominant in Eretz Yisrael. Um, that's Byzantium, that's, 15, that's 1058. Um, and then the last major one is... Presbyterians, Martin Luther. Martin Luther, 1516, post the 95 Theses, leading to the Protestant Reformation, the War, the War of 100 Years, Lutheranism, Calvinism, and then the Anglican Church, and the many other, other denominations therein. So Christianity is plenty complicated for itself. Um, I, this is helpful to know when I, I go into this in greater depth in my, in my longer history class, because whatever's happening out there, the Christians are so dominant in the world, they have a major influence on the Jews. I mean, among other things, the Protestant Reformation led directly to Reform. And they took the name, the same name. Reformation became reform. Jews, the Jews tried to imitate the non-Jews. So, so you, it is instructive to look at what what, what they're doing as well. Um, it's during this period. Um, it's during this period that Shmuel Katan, Shmuel Katan, who just came up in uh, uh, earlier today, composed a special bracha. Anybody knows what he composed? Rabbi Gamliel affirmed it. Lamal Shinim, the nineteenth of the eighteen benedictions. We call it the Shmonas He added the nineteen. Lamal Shinim is specifically written about the slanders, the different sects of these days. In particular, it was, it was called Birkas Haminim. Min means heretic. And also, Min translates as 
Ma'amine, those who believe in Yeshu Hanotri, Jesus of Nazareth. Mem Yud Nun. So that's, that's Min, and he composed it with clearly them in mind. It's the only bracha, this is brachos, it's the only bracha that if the Shliach Sibur makes a mistake when he's saying it, um, he's removed, because we suspect maybe he's one of them. Shmuel Akata, the Gemara tells us, was saying Chazar Sashatz, and he started making a mistake in his own bracha, but they gave him credit because they figured you know, anybody could make a mistake. Uh, is that a joke? No, no, it's really, that's the Gemara says it. It's not a joke. It's not a joke. Gemara's very witty sometimes. <laughs> you have to understand the, <clears throat> the deeper truths of it. The, um, <clears throat> at this stage in history, we talked about this, where we're holding, we're in the late temp Second Temple period. There are Jews here, they're under whose domination at this stage? We are, we are post Hashmonaim. You remember that Pompey moved in and took advantage of the last weak Hellenized descendants of the Hasmonean family, the Hashmonaim, uh, Hercules and Aristobulus. He moved in for the kill, and Pompeius came from Rome. Rome is now the dominant um, power in the world and, and in Judea in particular. Uh, right now, we're hovering around. We talked about Herod. Herod came and went. Herod dies in the year four of the Common Era. We just made it into the Christian Common Era. Um, and now we're closing in around the Chorban. Chorban is dated usually around 70 in the Common Era. I say around because maybe there's a margin. At this point in history, there's something of a margin error of a couple years. So we're getting closer to the Christian calendar. They manipulated things earlier. This is around the time when it's easier. History gets easier around this time, too, because we have many more archives, many more records. We can verify things. Some fascinating uh, 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 bits of history. The problem, of course, is that you, many of the things that we have are questionable. Are they authentic? Are they not authentic? But there's some interesting texts that are out there. It's at this time that there's a figure the Romans need. The Roman needs a live, what's called a netziv, a prefect, a governor, who's going to rule the Jews. And... Um, most of them are bad guys. I closed last week with the story of Pontius Pilate, who was definitely a bad guy. But some of them were decent, and some of them actually came from Herod's family, which means they have Jewish blood. One of them is a very fine, flawed figure by the name of Agrippus. Uh, anybody been to the Shuk? There's a, there's a street name for him. Uh, yeah. The first Agrippus, his son, the second Agrippus was a bad guy, but the first one was really very fine. And probably the most important story to note, Pilatus, they had a very righteous wife. They used to ask Shilas all the time. Lots of great things you could say about them, and I wish I had more luxury of time. But the one thing I think you have to know is one year, it was time for Hakel. What's Hakel? Okay, that was totally incoherent. The, um, it was the, it's the time when on, after the Shemitah year, the king gets up and reads sections of Sefer um, Tavarim for all the people. Everybody comes and gathers in Yerushalayim. It's a very rousing ceremony. And Agrippus comes and he reads the section. And he gets to the line that says that a king has to come from your people. Mikera vachicha tasim alecha melech. From your people you have to place upon yourself a king. And he starts to get choked up, see? Because as a descendant of Herod, he was not from the midst of the people. See, the only legitimate king we've ever had came from Beis David. You're not from Beis David. The Hashmonim incorrectly used, later Hashmonim used the term king. They were not legitimate kings, but at least they were from Mikera Vachecha. You were from the, the people. Uh, Herod and his family, his descendants, like Agrippus, can't even claim that. And he knew it, and he had Yerushalayim, even though he had some flaws, because he was a he was a shtickle uh, lover of the Roman culture. But um, but he was a good guy who, who revered Chazal, and um, he cried. The rabbis who were present loved Agrippa so much that they made a terrible mistake. They were guilty of a sin called Chanufa. What is Chanufa? 
No. I mean, another term? It was really good. I have a file on the subject. Flattery. It's flattery where it's like this. Be careful. This is a big grave prohibition. Some say it's derisive, others say it's derabundant, but it, it leads to all kinds of terrible things. And you hear what happened after this flattery. It's the kind of thing where you, um, somebody who's not from says, oh, well, our version of Shabbos is we light the candles together at the dinner table, for example. If you were to say, oh, that's really nice. That's a very beautiful thing, too. It's not. It's, it's, I mean, if, assuming that they're lighting after it's already dark, it's actually Chil Shabbos. And if you're misrepresenting Torah and Torah, uh, and you're and you uh, and you're saying that you're actually flattering them and distorting the truth. You're not allowed to do that. It's a great prohibition. And they said it's okay, Grippus. Achinuata, achinuata. You are our brother. You are our brother. And um, uh oh, Chachamim say the, the, the Chazal say after that 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 day, Dean declined, judgment declined, corruption, anarchy increase. Uh, because when Hanufa comes into the world, evil seems okay. Everything's legitimate. It's very relevant for our days because we live in such PC times that everybody wants the most important thing in, 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 in many Western societies is to be nice. No? As long as everybody feels good, then it's all good. Sometimes, you know, we like, don't get me wrong, nice is good. I like nice too, but not at all, not at the expense of everything else, not at the expense of truth. And sometimes you can't lie, you can't misrepresent, and this is the beginning of the end. We see, we see this is one of the events that leads, not inevitably, but it's one of the many events that leads to our destruction. Now, it's ironic, because this is one of the heyday times in history for conversion. The Jews are being increasingly and mercilessly persecuted. Uh, the end seems very much in sight. You know, the destruction of the first temple happened, and now it looks like this, the second temple is going in the same direction. And yet it's probably, except for the days of the late days of David and the early days of Shlomo, it's probably the greatest time in history for converts. And it's totally insane. They say that, they, that one of the ways of looking at it is that Rome uh, conquered Jerusalem and, and Judaism conquered Rome. And to some degree it's true. Between Christianity, which is a distortion of Judaism, but it's drawing on similar ideas. I mean, a lot of Yoshka's teachings, for the record, are straight out of the Tanakh and have you know Jewish ideas in them so naturally they're appealing because they're true and the same and now you have Judaism that's speaking very much to the alienated Roman psyche um, who are some of the famous converts who come from this period one of them one of them brought down an old tradition of the uncle is with the old version of Targum uh, there's Helenia Malka Mungbaz HaMelech uh, great figures all in Chazal and Unculus was the nephew of the Caesar Debate, it's debated which Caesar, Hadrian or something. He comes later, but it's around this period you start to see um, a lot of converts. And it's even after destruction when the Jews are carted off in slavery wholesale, and yet they're converting still. Because Rome gives you everything, and the same thing, the same thing we're talking about, but doesn't answer the questions, the, the meaning of life, and that's what people were looking for. The, um, this is a time when, in great persecution, we have this incredible class of rabbis. And when I do this topic better, I have more luxury of time to go into this. I actually go into, we learn about the rabbis and the personalities and the stories and the Yagadatim, what they teach us. And it's endlessly rich and inspiring. Uh, and I'm not, I, I can't go into all of that. But one of the things that emerges is that in all of this period, with all the hostility and difficulty that the Jews suffer, you have this huge influential class of people called rabbis, the rabbinic figures who are, whose goodness is almost unrivaled. It's described in the most sublime terms. I'll give you a couple of stories. Um, 
there's a man who becomes poor, but he used to have a lot of money. So the Gemara Ksubas tells us that the great Hillel, who's still the, the, the wise old Hillel, at, oh, not, he's living 120 years, he's around for a while. But Hillel's solution, let me know this, a very famous Gemara. But he said, how do you support a man who lost all of his wealth, but he's used to it? He says, it's not enough just to give him a hamburger. You gotta give him, you gotta get him what he's used to. Hillel provided him a running, a riding horse and a slave to run ahead. And one day the slave is unavailable. So Hillel runs ahead so that the man's used to a certain level of dignity. That was the nature of his in, in, intense goodness. A man made a bet that he could get Hillel angry. I referenced this the other day on the Arab Shabbos, no less. And there's no dice. Nothing's gonna get, nothing can ruffle Hillel's feathers. He's too good. He's too loving of people. In another story, we learn about Marukfa and his wife. Um, there was a poor man that they'd given tzedakah to, um, but they did it quietly. And suddenly he's gonna come in and catch them and see who they are and be embarrassed. So they do the, well, <laughs> I mean, they do the logical thing under the circumstances. They jump into the hot, fiery furnace of an oven. Yes, so the man will not be embarrassed. Um, Rav Chana Bar Hanilai, um, his practice of tzedakah, he would hire every day 60 bakers to come to his house and 60 every night in order to prepare enough bread to give out to all the poor. And at night, he sets out bags of grain for those who are too, who are too ashamed to beg. They can at least come and get the grain and be able to bake for themselves. And if we can get started, I'll, I'll never finish. And was, that's the nature of the goodness of Chazal, that in times like this, you don't understand how they could do it, where do they get it from, and you realize, once you have Torah, you got the secrets to everything. Daniel, you had something? Okay. Um, at one point, about 40 years before the Horban, the Sanhedrin, the times are declining. The Sanhedrin becomes powerless to try murderers. The murderers would bribe the wicked Roman rulers, the Nitzivim, and get out of it. So since they can no longer try murder, there's one exception as they do try, uh, according to this Gemara I referenced before, they do kill Yashka, one of the few exceptional, don't tell Mel Gibson, please. Um, but uh, the other, the other, the other Christian, the other Christian uh, extremists who think that the Jews done it, according to their books, the Christians done it. But we know the secret. Um, the Romans, the, Ro the Romans done it, right? The Romans killed Yashka according to their own accounts. Why do they think that we did? Um, we okay, that's their their version. But we didn't actually, we, according to their uh, event of things, we didn't actually do the actual job. The reason, one of the reasons that they think so is that unlike Judaism. Christianity and Islam are not intellectually based religions. What does that mean? Does it mean they're all idiots? No. It just means without the obligation of Talmud Torah, without the obligation of Talmud Torah, the masses don't learn, they don't have to learn, and they're left basically with rumors. And whenever the preacher gets up on Sunday and he wants to give one of these, uh, these, 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 these fiery sermons, um, he'll get them riled up. And if he says the Jews are Christ killers, they'll believe him because they... You know, through most of history, most of the Christian followers were illiterate. Until the printing press, most of the world were illiterate. So you believe what your, what your pastor Jews. told you. What's that? The Jews. No, not the Jews. Because you gotta be, you gotta know Tyra. Except for the Jews. The Jews always knew. We hand copied everything. So uh, at this point, there's no more ability for the Sanhedrin to try murderers. And so Chazal ex exiled themselves. Um, the first Arab Shabbos. The first Arab Shabbos, I took you there. Do you remember? And oh, we went to a place right after, right after the Kleinikosel. We went to what's called the Cotton Market. And some of you, not everybody worked out. And I mentioned this the other day. Some of you got up close and went to the closest place 
to where you can see into Harabais, into, into, right there. You saw Shlomo, you were there? Okay, Gavaldic, right? The best theory that we have is that the Sanhedrin stood in that cotton market. Um, it used that as its base. When it exiled itself, when it said we can no longer try, do, the, do, do these trials, we're going to show the Jews that we're declining and therefore they should know this and feel it and that it's all dependent on us in making tshuva. If, if the Jews see that the Sanhedrin is not in its proper place in the base of Mikdash, maybe that will prompt them to make tshuva. Do you know that the Sanhedrin was exiled? The Gemara and Rosh Hashanah tells us 10 times total. Each time was another attempt to try to get the Jews to make tshuva. Eventually, the last place the Sanhedrin stood, a few a couple hundred years from now, Sanhedrin's last point of glory was Tiberias, Tiberia. I say, what do you say? Like, why would, I don't know why they would exile them. Wouldn't that just make things worse? No, because it made a mockery of the, because once they tried a person and, and made him chayav misa, guilty of capital uh, uh, punishment, um, the the guy would buy buy his um, judgment off with the Roman authority. And oh, so there's an actual problem with the yeah, it was politics. No, they did it because they they, they were basically undermined by the Romans. The Romans, I'm skipping so much, the Romans rampage, they murder randomly, the Jews get in there, there's some hot-headed Jews who are called, uh, they get different names from zealots and such, um, who, who also got into the act. The Romans raped um, what we start seeing emerging, much like we saw near the end of the first temple, uh, was all elements of the curse of the Klola coming true. The um, rabbis, led by Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, one of the great rabbis, another one who lived 120 years. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, they... What's that? No, that's, that's a later Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. This is still one of the Tanai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, a disciple of Hillel. Um, he and the Chachamim opposed fighting, but now increasingly... This is, tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. The Jews know better than the rabbis. And some of the hotheads start fighting anyway. Because the Romans will only, they claimed only will understand force, and we've got to do it. And their calls sometimes go ignored. So the rabbis, if they're going to ignore them, go into the base medrash to learn Torah and to daven on behalf of the people. How do we know all this? Um, probably the major source of history from this period is this figure, I have to at least mention him, named Josephus, Flavius Josephus. Uh, who is a mixed problematic guy. By the way, even in the acad academic studies, Josephus is rightly read with skepticism. Um, among other things, everything happened to Josephus. He fought wars. He was the greatest general of all, of all times. Who said? Well, that's what a coincidence, Josephus. Uh, he was everywhere. You know the story that you all heard about Masada? That's, Josephus wrote that. How do you know the story? The two women miraculously escaped and they came and they found, well, Josephus. And it's almost an identical story that happened to Josephus himself in Yodfat, in the north. And, and, and um, we start to wonder, hmm, this fellow's a bit self-aggrandizing. So did he like, stick his name into places that like, he wasn't there or did things not happen? Well, you tell me. I'll give you this source. He writes, I'll quote him. He says, he says I far exceed the rabbis in my Jewish learning. Um, he writes, when I escaped from Jerusalem, I came out and I met Vespasian, the, the, the uh, Roman general. And Vespasian asked me what I wanted. And I said, Tenli Yavne, Vichachameha, give me Yavne and its wise men. Josephus writes about himself. Nobody else is agitated by that? Um, That's totally ripped off. 
Who did he rip it off from? Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai. It's one of the famous great stories in all of history. It's, it's five different places in Shash. You probably learned the one if you've learned it before in, in Gitin, where it was Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai. I'm going to tell you this story. But to see if it's somehow incredibly, literally in the term, the, the, the term incredible, I don't believe him, right? It's all about himself. Um, he also is very problematic. He was clearly a tzaduki. He was influenced by Sadducee ideas. Um, I'll, I'll illustrate how. He writes, for example, all about, he writes about politics and, and, and military. He writes a lot about, like as if you're reading um, the secular newspapers, he never mentions once the Anshik Nesis Gedola. He rarely ever refers to the rabbis, the Gedolim. He talk, doesn't talk about Hashem, doesn't talk about Torah much. Um, he often contradicts the versions in Chazal, we'll, we'll hear. Um, he himself describes the end that Titus, at the time of general fighting, did not intend to actually destroy the Beis Mikdash. Well, think about it. Josephus, by his own account, was taken captive. That's where he wrote his history books, Antiquities and the Jewish Wars and the others. Um, he's writing, sitting in Roman captivity. He is under some pressure. He has to be machnif, chanufa. He has to ingratiate himself to the Roman authorities, otherwise he's in trouble. So he says, oh, no, the Romans really love us. It's the Jewish fault. The Jews, the Jews made, the, made, made the trouble. However, I should say this too. Josephus is a major source of information, even in, the, in, in academic studies, they find massive detail. He describes in rich detail the food that they ate, the clothes that they wore. He describes Gamla to a T. You go there today, you see anybody hike Gamla in the Golan Heights? It looks like Josephus describes. Josephus describes where they found the third wall just a few blocks down the way, and you can walk along and take Josephus in hand, and it's, it's uncanny. He's very, very helpful in that regard. He clearly knew stuff, and he probably gathered a lot of information. He was, he was well-placed to be a historian. Mistama, he knew some, some things. The basic thrust of Josephus is questionable, but some of his stuff is invaluable, and Chazal and the post-scheme read his books. The Vilna Gon said, said, read, he said, read Josephus, and you'll understand better this period. So he recommended it. It's called Yosefun in, 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 uh, in Hebrew, but, but read it skeptically is my, is my, my message. Um, I'll start at the beginning of the end. Tomorrow, Bezras Hashem, we'll finish this. And this tomorrow's our last session together for the time being. I, I think we're about halfway through history. So on some time in the year, my goal, Bezras Hashem, it may or may not happen if we find time. We'll try to find time to finish this. The second half, I think you'll find very compelling. I like the first half. Great. Okay, so we'll have to do, we'll have to figure it out. In any case, in 66 of the Common Era, the Great Revolt, what's called in Hebrew, the Merit Gadol breaks out. It's called the Great Revolt. Because clearly there were a lot of minor revolts that happened before then. Esav, Yaakov, you're talking about a, a powder keg waiting to explode. Right? And, and, and um, that's been the case. They've been at each other's throats, mostly the Romans at the Jewish throats. It all breaks out where? Again, it's just one, uh, one example of, 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 um, of, of, a, of a massacre. There have been many, many, but this time the, the original massacre that leads to the Great Revolt happens in Caesarea. The city that you remember, the first artificial port city that Herod built uh, on the sea. Very important place to go visit in Israel. I left a guy there. What? Caesarea. Caesarea. Built by Herod. I don't know. And it was one of those cyclical conversations. The, the, um, in the, in the, there's a whole dramatic story that breaks out where the Romans, the Greeks, who were there, lay an ambush for the Jews outside their shul. And the Jews fall into it. There's, as I said, a bloodbath. When the Jews go and complain um, in Sebastia to the, to the Roman governor, the Roman hears the Jews complain. And it, they were totally set up. It was rigged. 
And you know what the Roman governor's response is? He throws the Jews into jail. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. The, 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 the conflict breaks out and spreads all around the country. Um, and it's the beginning of the end. And uh, it's, a ter- it's seen as the great tragedy in all of history. And you should get this idea. I'm about to conclude for today. But get this idea. We'll talk about the reasons for the second, the second temple's destruction. You have to realize everything bad that happens to Klal Yisrael and has happened to Klal Yisrael in the last 2,000 years is an extension of this. When the secular society came up with a new day um, called the Yom HaZikaron, the Shoah of Ligvur, they call it in Hebrew, the Holocaust Memorial Day, it's a secular day and it's problematic. I refer you to a very helpful footnote in Art Scroll's um, Tisha B'Av Sidur, uh, Machsor. They say, they say to create a separate day for the Holocaust implies that somehow the Holocaust was different when significantly the rabbis and the postmen have always taught that everything that's bad that's happened to Klal Yisrael is an extension of Korban. As horrific as the Holocaust is, you can say it's unprecedented in many ways, it's still, it's no different than the Crusaders and the, and the Spanish expulsion and the, and the many, many tragedies that have befallen Klal Yisrael, which is an extension of the continuing Korban. It says that every generation that the temple has not been rebuilt. As if the temple was destroyed. It was as if the temple was destroyed in their days. We're all guilty, in other words. And everything bad that happens is, is a reminder that we have to do something. You say something? Okay. Classic reasons. Classic reasons for the destruction. Um, yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to this tomorrow. But it's Rosh Hashanah's Okay. And uh, yeah, and, and we'll and we'll go with it.